Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, a Full Mind production. At Full Mind, our vision is to ensure every child has access to an exceptional education. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spearbauer. Welcome back, everybody, to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. I am really eager to introduce to you today's two guests. We have the dynamic duo of Ben Markovitz, an executive coach and the founder and senior advisor to All Means All, and also the founder and former CEO of Collegiate Academies. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. Great to be here, Haley. Thanks. Great to have you here. And also, I want to give an extended welcome to Jarrell Bryant, the CEO of Collegiate Academies. Jarrell, welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you both for taking time out of your extremely busy schedules. I'm talking to a CEO of a school network in September. This is not an easy time for you to get away from what you're doing. So I'm grateful that you made space for joining the podcast today. I'm going to kick us off. I'm going to kick us off with our forever first question. I'll start with you, Jarrell. How did you come to be the personal and professional version of yourself? That's such a great question because I'm often asking myself that question. It's, it's, it's evolving. Yeah. Um, but uh, more than anything, through challenges and truly embracing growth. I think when I started teaching, um, I had convinced myself that I had a growth mindset and anything and everything I was doing was antithetical to a fixed mindset. And that worked really well when I thought I was good at what I was doing, uh, or there were results that may have confirmed that I was pretty good at what I was doing. Uh, that was tested a lot um, and has been tested a lot over the last 15 years um, in education as challenging experiences emerge. And what happens in the moment right, is, uh, is a testament to a willingness to love kids, embrace the moment, uh, recognizing that growth is never linear and also truly relying on a growth mindset. Um, so when I think about where I am now, uh, again, it's, it's evolving, um, but it's, it's a function of uh, the hardest moments and, and certainly not of successes. And that's not something I thought I would say or where I would be um, when I first started this journey. Girl, I have to tell you, I have recorded about 50, 60 episodes of the podcast thus far. And that is by far the most real and vulnerable answer afterwards <laughs> one give. And it already gets me excited for the level of just transparency and honesty. I think you're going to bring to this conversation. And I appreciate that and want to make space for how heavy it is to sometime admit that. No, I'm, um, I'm uh, very humble to, to explain that. I, I think in, <laughs> in my own journey, uh, I wish I had sought out people who had ostensibly failed and then succeeded far earlier uh, than I think I, I knew how to. So uh, if, if, that can, if that can prompt someone else in their journey, then that's, uh, it's more than worth it. So thank you. Works. Uh, ben, same question for you. How did you come yeah. to be the personal and professional version of yourself? Um, yeah, thanks for asking. I, I, 
I think the the shape of that story is actually similar to what Jarrell just said. My my story is somewhat different. I was starting and running a school in New Orleans like immediately after Hurricane Katrina, and I think uh, I too found myself, uh, you know, uh, strongest as a kind of self appointed ambassador of the growth mindset. And uh, you know, we took on kids who. Uh, at the high school level, uh, where I think most new schools were taking on kids at the elementary or middle school level, and thus like tackling, you know, deep challenges. And we were proud of that. And that was um, sort of those, those were our talking points all the time. Like it's never too late. Um, even if you're multiple grade levels behind, we can win on this. Um, and then I think the real answer to your question uh, begins a few years into that, where my wife and I had our first child and she had a brain injury. And doctors told us she was essentially like not going to develop at all. Um, and the uh, experience of devastation that I felt from that um, was, of course, uh, the most important thing that ever happened to me in my life at that point. But it was also, in retrospect, like pretty shocking how little of that growth mindset I was preaching about all the time uh, seemed to be affecting me in that moment. Uh, I was not suddenly inspired the way I tried to make everybody on our campus inspired to believe in the impossible or, um, you know, uh, say it's never too late. Uh, and so I kind of felt like a fraud. I was like, you know, this horrible thing has happened to me and I'm only inspiring if I'm talking about other people's kids, which might mean that like deep down, I don't even really believe it. This is just like a professional version of me that is like actually not me at all. Um, and then you know, very fortunately, uh, we had some experiences with our daughter where she did start to develop. And quite frankly, because we had the means and the privileges to be able to invest in that pretty deeply, um, I saw some things that actually reversed my opinion and actually renewed my opinion on what growth really meant. Um, and I think what I had been missing was... Um, in schools, it's nice to have this dialogue about how we can do things that others haven't done yet, and that's inspiring. Um, but what really matters is like, do we love these children enough, like their parents and families do, that um, if there's any chance we can do something for them, we're gonna take it, um, because that's how we were operating at home. And then add to that the fact that I had all these privileges and resources to bring to this, then just kind of put in relief how few of those some of our kids and families had. And then I think my role in kind of designing our network and pushing our network forward was like heavily informed by trying to close that gap and actually create something world-class off of that belief system that, you know, I was becoming acquainted with. And like, uh, again, this most devastating thing that happened to me personally became like the most important thing that happened to me professionally. And that's, I think I've remained uh, affected by that daily. Also want to thank you for your vulnerability and sharing that and, and putting it out. I know this is part of your story and you've shared it before in public places and spaces. And in your case, as you named, it helped renew your sense of like vigor and rigor for the work you're doing. You know, Jarrell and Ben, as I listen to both of you, Obviously, there's a theme of growth mindset and how that applies to our personal lives, our home lives, and our professional lives and our belief in students and education. Where does that stand today, right? You're both connected to Collegiate, the work that you're doing. Collegiate was 
really born of and grew on this theory. So what does that mean for how the system is operating under that premise? It's a great question. Um, programmatically, uh, when I try to answer sort of a, a system level question like that, Haley, I, I think about the, the daily experiences of our kids and, and how does that live out, right? So an organization says, we're about growth mindset. Um, what does that mean for uh, the scholar who is right outside this library? And um, uh, more than anything, it, it means that the scholar feels seen for where they currently are, where they're currently performing. Uh, and we are both assessing the beauty of that and also assessing the needs to be met and that we're celebrating growth constantly, right? Um, so regardless of where they are in an absolute sense, uh, do they know that we see them and do they know that we see their growth and that we honor it and celebrate it? And just as professionals, are we getting better at growing scholars? Uh, and everything ultimately about us is using the mindsets that adults must have in themselves right, to grow. When we grow, our scholars grow. We often say that adult culture uh, dictates the ceiling for scholar culture. Um, so if we're, if we're building uh, a network, an ecosystem, a region, uh, a country full of kids who, uh, regardless of, of zip code or obstacles or because of those, uh, they see their path to college or something beyond, then that starts with our adult orientation to growth mindset um, because we know how radical it is uh, right, to sit in the living room of a child in eighth grade entering high school and saying, regardless of where you've been up until this point, uh, here's what we're committed to. Um, and here's what we need you to be committed to uh, because we'll do it together. The really, uh, yeah, it's a, speaks to right where I think my head's at on it, which is that, uh, um, Drell, while you're talking, I was thinking about, uh, I have an eight-year-old uh, named Ronan, and he um, just started playing guitar, has these like weekly lessons on guitar, and it's to practice for, you know, a few minutes a day, and I realize like how focused I am when I'm listening to him practice on like finding the one thing that improved from yesterday, um, and because in part, I know he can't find that all that easily. Um, you know, he's kind of thinking in this binary sense, like, did I play well or did I play not well? And the fact that he like was able to do one or two things today that he couldn't do yesterday uh, does not mean to him that he's suddenly playing well. But I'm focused on not talking about that. I'm I'm focused on saying like that thing that you just did, like you just were able to kind of hit that rhythm without having to pause and rearrange your fingers. And yesterday you couldn't do that. Nice. And we celebrate that. And this idea that like, if you focus your celebration on incremental growth and incremental wins, you're doing two things that I think don't happen in schools nearly enough. One is you're getting kids focused on what they can do and building momentum off of that. So like, he feels like if, if I'm calling out, hey, you grew by 10% today, he's thinking I'm probably gonna grow by 10 or 15% tomorrow. Uh, and that's actually in the story of, of him going to zero to 50, like that's going to be crucial. Um, 
And the second thing is like, you end up celebrating things a lot more. Like you just have a lot more celebration around you. And I think of there are two things that I value most, like being in the community at Collegiate, is that you have a bunch of people who are, they're looking with that lens on the entire community's growth, right? So in a way that like a school that has a kid who curses out their teacher 20 times a day does not notice when the next day the kid only does it 18 times, right? A collegiate teacher will. And that's an enormous part of that kid's story to figuring out how to exist in the world happily. If that if that doesn't get noticed, right? We don't have that story. And so our team knows that, our kids know that. And then because these are increments and everybody has this lens, you're celebrating a lot more. So it's not just that it's a place that's taking on like more daunting challenges and like feels proud of that. It actually is a place that's having a lot more fun more regularly uh, and feeling at peace and, and feeling, feeling the joy of these experiences with each other more regularly. Um, I haven't always been so great at like doing that myself. Jarell, Jarell really has a, a practice of doing that that's exceptional. Um, but I, I have marveled at people who seem to be able to do that day in and day out uh, every day. And I think it's like really, it fuels itself. So I, um, I think it should happen more in schools. And you are, um, you're very good at uh, providing granular examples um, that, that seem and are in fact uh, aligned to something much more broad. Uh, but as you were speaking, um, part of what we're trying to do is to operationalize belief or operationalize an inspiration, right? And, and pull the curtain back on that, right? That anybody can do that uh, in our schools if they know what to look for, right? If we are crystal clear on this choice that an adult just made or a scholar just made will move us closer to our vision regardless of how small that choice is, right? The choice to ask for feedback unprompted, right? Um, the choice to greet when you don't feel like greeting. <laughs> um, and when we see operationalizing belief or inspiration through that lens, then it's a series of disciplined affirmations about an agreed upon choices. And that is inexhaustible. And as adults, if we can do that for each other and we can do it, for our kids, now we're actually enhancing the chances that we'll continue to make those choices that we know make us better. Um, and as reductive as that sounds, I think that is just a critical lever for doing the work when it feels good, for doing the work when it feels hard, for doing the work when it feels singular in its mission, and for doing the work when it feels more holistic, which to Ben's point, it does make the work more fun, but also our charge, our opportunity uh, to build a generation of, of kids that go into the world, actually making it better. And um, sometimes that can be uh, overblown or seem aspirational, but actually just affirming someone for making a choice that makes the community better goes a long way. Ooh, okay, so I have to like double click on this idea of operationalizing beliefs or inspiration, right? Because I have been in schools myself that similarly 
desire to shape behavior through positive reinforcement, right? Feedback that is specific, that is specific, it's repetitive. And I noticed, and this is a while ago, but I noticed that the challenge becomes almost like that, the, the orientation around the habit of this. How, Ben and Jarrell, how do you support educators in your network and or everywhere, wherever, you know, I know, Ben, some of your work has expanded beyond collegiate as well. How do you support educators in working that muscle and retaining that muscle? I, you mentioned bad days and good days. Yes. And we know that once you, once you sustain the habit, once you build the habit, it's easier to execute on it. So I'm just curious because the folks listening are probably wondering, well, yeah, that sounds great. How do I do that? How do I make that part of my own system? Yeah. I think the, the clearest answer that we have found is that in the way we want teachers to do that for kids, we do that for teachers. Leaders must do that for teachers. And so specifically, um, if you think about how kids receive feedback on their work, um, if they are struggling but improving, we've already mentioned, that's something our teachers are trained to notice um, and talk about. If uh, they're on a particular trajectory that is going to improve their lives, we name that for them. And we make that a part of uh, our understanding of their identity. We know that if a kid is working hard every day, they need their school to believe they're a hardworking kid. And when that school refers to them as a hardworking kid, they're even more inspired to keep working hard every day. What we studiously do with leaders in this organization is train them how to do that for adults. And so um, Jarrell starts every day at uh, the school that he's led for the last 10 years uh, with a circle of you know well over 100 adults where leaders are actually meeting before that circle to talk about how that circle is going to shore up, stamp, and uh, teach people about the things that adults need recognition for. But it's not just isolated to adults. It is, of course, like a meta experience with kids. So it wouldn't be uncommon for uh, somebody in that circle to name three teachers in this room who have been particularly diligent about writing down and distributing their accommodations for their kids. And what that means is that those teachers are probably also going to those kids and recognizing them similarly for nailing uh, their material within those accommodations. And so the entire environment, uh, front to back, top to bottom, is about recognizing growth. And this is what we're going for when we're sort of like creating a culture that operationalizes belief is that like any culture, something that's not a part of it sticks out like a sore thumb. It's not just a teacher doing this because those are the expectations. It's like a teacher doing this because that's what's fun and cool to do here. And that's what the people I love and respect here are doing. Um, so I want to be initiating that kind of recognition. Um, and just to be clear, right? Like this this also solves problems, right? Like these are these are schools where kids get, you know, the equivalent of three years of learning in just one year and where, you know, staff morale is typically so high, there's, you know, very little uh, retention concern across staff, uh, even during these really tough years. They've won, uh, you know, best place to work prizes. Um, these are things that are not just uh, kind of soft 
variables. Um, they really do uh, map forward to a ton of results. And so I think that is the ultimate piece that without which we would not keep this going is that we are able to day after day link the fact that this person shouted out these three adults for their accommodations work to the fact that our kids who are receiving those accommodations are breaking through um, in very, very real measurable ways. And so telling that story over and over and over again actually fuels future stories that are just like it. I couldn't agree more. Um, <laughs> the, the purpose of the interaction uh, isn't to make someone feel good. That might be a product of it. The purpose is to realign us to our vision and our values and the choices we get to make in pursuit of that. So that helps with the discipline of, it's not just about the good, right, or the bad. There's a, there's a, there's a clear purpose to this. Um, I think over time, we've sort of named two ways broadly in which we approach this reorientation to vision and values right, through recognition. There are micro moments that are the seemingly unpredictable quick one-to-one -one moments that a strong teacher in our network might have 30 of them during a single three-minute transition as kids walk by. Thanks for walking to the right. Loved your exit ticket. Whatever it might be. As adults, we get to do that too with each other. But again, these are reinforcing choices that are aligned to our values and to our vision. And then been referenced morning meeting, which is roughly seven minutes, whole team. It's a priority. There's practice. There's a debrief. There are announcements. It's a macro structure. We're going to do it every single day, rain or shine, regardless. And that enhances the discipline around that. And then throughout the course of the day, the week, the year, also scholars experience macro structures that have the same bent towards how can we best recognize the choices that are getting us closer, regardless of how small they might be in just very routine ways. Because to your point, uh, the journey of the school year is gonna be full of challenges that are expected and unexpected. And so our charge is that we need to build something that not only weathers that, but to Ben's point, advances us. I think there's another piece in this um, to answer your question, Haley, about like how do we support adults uh, and teachers to live in this uh, space with these ideals? Um, I think it's a fundamental aspect of how we hire. So uh, people actually make the choice to join our program knowing that that is what the world is there. Um, that's actually something I discovered primarily hiring you, Jarell. Um, and um, the, the story of that was that in our first year- It was uh, rough, it was rough going to begin. <laughs> Let's talk this, about growth mindset. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, we, Jarell joined us in our very second year as, as a school and actually was kind of a part of our community the first year he coached basketball uh, for us after school. And, uh, but he was still finishing out his uh, Teach for America commitment um, at, uh, at a school that actually would soon close after that. Um, but, uh, you know, he was somebody who we really hoped would apply to work with us and really hoped would uh, succeed uh, with us and, and come join us. 
And I remember my process for hiring teachers at the time was to watch them uh, teach, of course. Um, and so I went to his classroom and he um, he was really struggling in that classroom, sixth grade ELA. Um, and he, um, you know, he had a great way with the kids. There was no doubt about it. Uh, but his, uh, his momentum slowed so uh, easily and he was so hard on himself when that happened um, that, I mean, I, I have this anecdote that he said the words no, stop or don't um, so many times that I uh, both started keeping track and then eventually stopped keeping track. Um, and I remember thinking like, gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I really wanted to hire this guy, but like, it looks like it, it might not work. Um, and the class was 90 minutes long and I stayed there the entire time. And I was like, what, I don't know what I'm going to say uh, to him afterwards. And he uh, luckily had a few minutes afterwards and, you know, Jarrell being Jarrell, just like 100% knew what I had seen, probably guessed what was in my head and, and simply said nothing, but like, can you please just tell me what to do? Um, and I had never had somebody ask me that before uh, in, in a situation like this. Um, and so I didn't know what to do other than just read him all of my notes. And I just read him all of my notes. And as I did that, he would like pause me and ask follow-up questions. He would pause me and practice things live. Uh, he wrote things down. He also was getting kind of, you know, obviously excited by this. Um, and so the day ended well, though, like I still had no idea what I was going to do about the fact that like he didn't seem ready to come teach. Um, he wrote to me two weeks later and asked me to come back. And I walk in there and it's just a completely different classroom. And the um, degree to which he was able to implement that feedback and create an entirely new culture in such a small uh, space of time was not only the reason why I was now kind of triply excited to hire him, um, but actually like profoundly changes how I thought about hiring. That like, I bet. This, is the, this is the thing, right? Yes. Like coming in and being excellent right away was never what we should have been looking for. Um, somebody who can grow like this, uh, well, there's probably no stop to that. Uh, they'll probably keep growing like this. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, even beyond that, it's going to be really important that our kids see this, right? That like a teacher can struggle, a teacher can grow. That's part of their story also. And so since then, it's been really important that we do that. You know, we, we actually like legitimately stopped hiring that way. We now hire with two sample lessons and feedback in between to see if there's implementation and really? growth. Yeah. Ah, um, I love that. And so this idea that we value slopes over points um, and that being the kind of overall philosophy of how we approach work with, with kids and adults, um, not only valuable for culture because we had to say to Jarell, and now we say to every teacher, the reason we're hiring you is not because you were quote unquote good. It was because of how much you grew between these two lessons. And so if that felt good to you, please take this job. If that was annoying or a headache to you, then it's probably not a great idea. Mm. Um, and so everybody who accepts a job walks in having made that choice. Um, and then beyond that, it comes in handy in countless situations. For example, when you are going from uh, 100 people on staff to like 500 in three or four years. 
And there may not even be teachers who have experience applying for these roles that you will in fact need to hire. Um, so I, I generally feel like all around teachers are being equipped to grow, uh, given a mandate to grow and feeling highly valued for their growth. And they know therefore implicitly that that's how they have to communicate with the uh, children. Okay, I like, that's a moment I have to like pause for a second. One drill, so cool that you were the model for this hiring process unknowingly, but also how <laughs> profound that that is what you're looking for. I recorded an episode in season two with um, Dr. Baron Davis, the former superintendent of Richland II in South Carolina, uh, who I've known for quite a few years now. And actually the episode was about hiring for beliefs over skills. Because what I hear you saying is actually that Jarrell and all the people you're hiring subsequently, you're hiring for the belief that change is possible, which is again, this growth mindset idea. And I think it really, that episode really, I want to like point people back to that as well, because I feel like it is so beautiful of a story arc with the story you're telling here and really needs to like be something more people embrace. It is so valuable to know that you don't have to arrive. You have, mm -hmm. there's no arrival. Mm -hmm. It's that you are willing to continue working on yourself for the betterment of the students that deserve it. Yeah. Something I do want to point out though, is that what this process, I think, at its best does is show people beliefs they didn't know they had, right? So, and that's critical, right? So Jarrell was somebody who did activate very easily on his own to take feedback and implement it. Not everybody comes to us with that mentality, but because our process demands that they take the feedback and implement it, they are frequently surprised by how much they grew. When in fact, they may have thought before, that's not something that I'm all that great at. Uh, I don't take feedback well, or I don't like, uh, you know, enjoy people watching me teach. Uh, I don't enjoy getting feedback maybe. And yet we put them through it anyway. They watch themselves grow. They're celebrated for it. And now they have a new understanding of themselves. That part I think is critical because that is what's going to largely be true about the children is that a teacher is going to face kids who don't just say, finally, you're here and I can like have uh, some validation for how much I believe in myself. <laughs> they actually have a lot that stands in their way of believing in themselves and teachers have an opportunity to help them create that. Um, and the fact that that's happened for them uh, also and continues to happen for them with leaders like Jarrell supporting them to do it, um, I think is actually like a critical part of uh, the skill set and uh, an operationalizing belief, as you said. Um, I hearken back to that, to that time. Um, more than believing that I was capable of growing or more than believing that I was capable of being a better teacher, um, I left that experience now knowing an identity shift can occur in a really short period of time if it's deliberate and immersive. I think I've taken that with me moving forward, which is when we talk about operationalizing belief or inspiration, one of the products of that is um, identity formation, right? Or uh, maybe better yet, not formation. It was in there, just maybe no one revealed it to you. Mm -hmm. And now that it's been revealed, you get to own it um, and own it moving forward. Uh, so I think that is, that's critical 
to this is not one-sided, right? It's it's a dialogue. When we're working with adults, we're working with kids. Uh, that's the internalized payoff here. Like now that you've seen you can grow, now you believe that that's who you are. That's what you do. Um, and if, if we can get our kids to believe in the steps they take, their mindsets that lead to outcomes and not just the outcome itself, uh, then we're truly on our way. Right, to, to building the growth mindset that lasts a lifetime. I'm so inspired by this. I know y'all, you know, you all have experience in this network and having built, you know, a system for replicating and supporting leaders than uh, in other networks and other places. And the education system has changed a lot over the past 15 years when Jarell, you mentioned you came into the classroom, which is right around when I came into the classroom as well. And once then you started uh, collegiate academies. And I just think about the current system, what we've endured the past four years and how dramatically it has changed the way schools operate. And I wonder for you, has anything, have, have you operated any differently today than you did four years ago prior to the pandemic? Or is this just like we doubled down on what we always believed and knew to be possible? I I know um, that I see school leaders uh, all over the country who would say that that's what they've done, like who feel like the success level that they've experienced one way or another uh, during and, you know, quote unquote, after the pandemic, um, the uh, has everything to do with digging deeper into a belief system they feel like has always been with them and that they have had to really, as you said, double down on. Um, I'm curious, you know, how Jarrell sees things from his seat right now, but I know that like one of the things that fundamentally guided um, uh, the folks in that network at Collegiate uh, through like, hard times and challenging times uh, prior to the last couple of years was the identity of the team as being a group of people who uh, loved challenges and uh, found that, you know, post-challenge, they were prouder of themselves and clearer about themselves every time. And then therefore were willing to say, so that's not just a silver lining to the challenge. That's a reason to crave challenge. Um, that's a reason to say like, we are the right people for this work as Jarell tells everybody regularly. Um, and I think that is really, really key that um, I know with um, working with my daughter and her many struggles uh, since that moment a long time ago, um, people frequently see that you know, I'm an educator, my wife's uh, an uh, educator and, and child psychologist and say like, wow, she really has a dream team. Like you're like, if, if something that terrible is going to happen to your child, you've really got the right parents for it. And as many, you know, complicated things I feel with that <laughs> statement, it also like is something I try to tell myself. And I, I hope that other parents have the opportunity to tell themselves if they're met with that challenge that I'm the right person to do this. Um, and so I think a leader telling their team that, um, and then looking for examples, uh, all around them, which they will then find 
undoubtedly, um, is actually the most important thing. And the degree to which we were able to create strategies uh, during that time that have not only helped us through that time, but I think have improved us even outside of that time, I think was highly dependent on being able to say that right away. Um, this is this is the right work for us. Um, and uh, uh, I, I, I remember not always feeling that way directly myself and marveling at the people in the network uh, who, who were saying that and doing that. But um, I'm curious, Jarrell, how do you feel like it, it stands now? Um, I, I agree with what you said. I don't have too much um, to add. The refrain, we're the right people for this work. And, and that's, not a, that's not a fixed or a static statement. That's a, um, we're the right people forever comes our way. Right. And ultimately, sometimes we're the only people in this moment. So we, uh, we, we need to be, uh, we need to believe that we're the right people. Um, much like any challenge uh, that we've experienced um, in the, the pandemic, obviously seismic and, and its challenges, strong reminder just how powerful and amazing our kids are. And um, we've we've shared a lot of as adults what needs to happen in order for us then to serve kids um, in the ways that they they deserve um but man during the pandemic that's what also um, got us through (laughs) just um how inspired and and how ready and just our kids um desire to, to grow and to learn and to engage and to connect. And coming back post pandemic, I think to Ben's point, not just the silver lining, but actually uh, what are the practices, what are the artifacts that allowed us to get through that time that have made us better educators, right? I think, you know, for one, our, our family communication has increased since the pandemic because in many sense like that, that was sometimes the work, like, can we get in touch with you? Um, I think. So we, we have found that to be effective. Right? Um, sometimes internet is wonky and you know, you only have a good 30 minutes um, and maybe that used to be a 97 minute objective. So uh, what are you capable of pulling off during that limited amount of time? Um, so, you know, Never something, uh, I'll never sit here and say uh, something, again, so seismic and tragic, um, yielded positives. But I think for, for us, um, leaning into those challenges, being inspired by our kids, and then taking tools that made us effective during that time forward to be better for kids now, we're all a part of the recipe. Yeah, I, I agree with what you both shared, that it's hard not to look back at the really traumatizing last four years and recognize it's sometimes hard to even see the silver linings or see the bright spots that you carry forward but the two that you just named right there Jarrell were really really powerful I you know I think it's an appropriate time to ask you my my final question today which is what advice would you give a teacher starting their career today and I'll start with you Ben since I started this question with you I'll, I'll make you my first answer for the last question as well I think to actually, um, some might disagree with this, but um, start with an idea of your, start with an assumption of your kid's greatness um, that 
you then translate to your own greatness. Um, and I'm, I'm saying this thinking about like my, my, my very first year teaching, I had um, a class of kids that would, I was, I was an 11th grade English teacher and I had four uh, groups of kids that I would see throughout the day. And um, I remember there was one class that just repeatedly exploded um, that, um, you know, I could not handle behaviorally and I really struggled. And I remember understanding that um, the kids in that class continually sent me the message that the work I was giving them was too hard for them. And the, um, the reason I think they were saying this was that the school had divided them into tracks. They had tracked their kids. So um, there was first, second, and third, and fourth track. And this was the fourth track. And because I was a somewhat lazy, uh, ignorant first-year teacher, I was not changing my lesson from one track to the next. And the fourth track picked up on this. And uh, rather than sort of, you know, self-advocate and say like, you know, we deserve, we deserve this challenging material, right? They, they said, you know, you can't give us this stuff. We're the fourth track. Um, you know, the message was clear. First track was smart, fourth track wasn't. And, um, What's more, this was like a five through 12 school. And so most of these juniors had been in the same track for most of their educational lives. And so before these eruptions were happening, I was hearing groans, right? Uh, comments like, this is too hard. He's crazy. Um, and, and some other things that were just like, frankly, sad. And like I said, I was giving them the same work, not because of any noble belief, uh, but because I just did not know how to differentiate my lesson. And my so my reaction to this was to essentially stay this lazy and start like lying to them uh and i remember this really clearly uh i was like really trying to make my life easier and i i followed i continued to follow the same lesson for every class but when i started when i got to the fourth track i would add a statement that was this lie i said i thought about all of you last night and i created this special lesson that i'm not giving to any other class today it's like it was a lie um but what i saw happen was these kids were thinking so you know branded less smart and less capable by this school we no longer have to worry about this class material we'll no longer have to worry that it's going to be too hard for us because if markovitz thought about us especially he must have made it easier and so now that they were thinking this they approached every task like kind of fearlessly and uh you know, they, uh, when they paused or, you know, kind of puzzled over something, um, they'd like just looked up and thought a little longer um, and sort of like comforted they were not biting off more than they could chew. And it, like, this wasn't of course perfect uh, for the rest of the semester. Like I was, I was sort of well known for my strong relationship with the 11th grade fourth track. And um, more important when I gave them the same midterm exam as the first track, they did almost as well. Um, but an even better discovery came the next semester when I got sort of a new crop of tracked classes. I did the same thing, but with one change. Instead of the, telling them a lie, I told them the truth from the beginning, which was essentially here in this class, I give you the exact same work as the first track. And because as last semester's crew proved, you can do it just as well. In this room, you are first track. 
And so those kids did even better. Um, and we all work to live up to that understanding. And let me also be clear and add the asterisk that like, I was not a good teacher then. So I didn't know all the ways to do this well. Um, but when you have support like uh, Jarrell gives to his teachers, assuming that every kid in your class is first track, and then asking the question, what's wrong with me that I am not actually getting them there, sort of supplies uh, you know, your principal with the ability to say, well, you're, you're a first track teacher. So yeah, what is it you're not doing yet that is actually you? It's this idea that like performance actually will follow identity far more than anything else. So get your identity right. Like, Prize yourself, prize your kids, and live up to it. That was so layered. There's so many good nuggets in there, Ben. Um, no problem. Um, sort of a two-parter. I'll shoot a little bit. I mean, one is um, I remember talking with uh, with Ben not long ago and uh, struggling with something and with coaching a teacher and offered a number of different systems. Um, maybe we need to, or maybe make this class smaller or change this transition or this. And Ben asked me, who's the best teacher you know? I named that teacher. He said, if that teacher was in front of the room, would you have all of these same suggestions? And the answer was categorically, no. <laughs> and immediately I started thinking about the mindsets of that teacher, what the behind the scenes work of that teacher would look like. The teacher calling families, right? The teacher showing up to games, um, just all those inputs. And I think for an early stage teacher thinking through that, hey, anything that happens, it's data, right? And it's then you get to do something with it but really refrain from finding yourself in a position in which you're now pointing fingers and saying, I don't have enough. Mm -hmm. You might not be able to do it yet, but I can probably find someone out there that could step into that position and do it. And that's not to compare grown people, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's just to remind ourselves of the limits that we see in our kids are limits we put on ourselves. So back to Ben's identity point. I think two, um, and this is similar, uh, but don't start trying to anticipate when you're gonna break for water before you start running the race. And so as an early stage teacher, hey, try this, just dive in, try it. Don't tell me that you're gonna be tired and we, like, just try it. And then we can prioritize and then we can work through it. But I think part of what makes an education incredible is the immersive feeling of it. And as an educator, leaning into the craft, that also needs to be immersive for you. You need to feel what it's like to feel overwhelmed. It's not a bad thing. We don't want it all the time. We don't want it for too long, but it's also actually what leads to growth quite a bit. And you'll be far more prepared when you're in front of the room and then kids tell you, this is too much, this is too hard. When you can actually index it to your own journey as an educator and say, and feel and know with conviction, Nah, this is just getting started. And um, that's what I would want for educators. Just constantly ask like, for the best person in the room, what might be different? And two, uh, let me dive a bit deeper right, before I ask for something else. 
I feel like a deep, deep breath of, of joy listening to both of you and hearing you both share. Uh, one, it's a pleasure to meet you and have you both do this together. I think um, hearing you both build upon the experiences you each have had working together and collaborating in this important work is really inspiring. I want to thank you, Jarrell and Ben, for joining the podcast. It has been beyond delightful to hear your stories. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Pleasure. It's really neat. Thank you. And thank you for everybody who tuned in today. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at fullmindlearning.com.